Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Welcome to today's episode of Cycling in Alignment. I'm here with Tim Cusick. Did I say that right? Is it Cusick or Cusick? No, Cusick, the way you said it. That's right. All right, perfect. Thanks for joining me and, and uh, tell our audience where you're you're calling in from today. You're in West Virginia? No, I'm in Pennsylvania. So Carlisle, oh. PA, South Central PA. Okay. And I would love it if you would go ahead and just introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about who you are and, and how you got involved uh, in cycling coaching, or maybe you started in other coaching avenues. I'm not sure. And then, of course, you got to tell us about WKO4 or WKO as it is frequently referred to. I, I call it WKO4, but I think I'm in the minority. I think people just call it WKO. So, okay. Yeah, no, great. First off, thanks for having me. Really always appreciate chatting, training with you and stuff like that. It's always fun. Uh, yeah. I mean, I've been in coaching since the early 2000s. My background is in education, actually. I kind of went the school teacher route through college. Uh, got out of that pretty quickly because I realized thing at that stage back in the late 80s, it was a hard to make a living and eating and having fun. And those things were important to me. Uh, I went into uh, other fields in the professional fields into uh, the data field, actually. So it's always interesting to say I have an education background. Then I went into data analytics and I did a lot of consumer analytic modeling. So I worked with high-end propensity modeling, and you know, big data analytics and stuff like that. Um, I started coaching in the early 2000s, the same transition so many of us have made. I was racing, was finding my own path, self-coaching, wanted to get faster, started learning, uh, realized how much not only did I love riding my bike, but loved learning about riding my bike. Then I was like, holy crap, there's data in this sport. And then it was kind of like game over, right? Because <laughs> I, I had a background in education. I had a background in data analytics. I liked riding my bike. I was like, there you go. There's destiny. So I started coaching in the early 2000s. <laughs> Um, so I, I have the coaching background, as you just said, I am also the training peaks WKO product leader. So I've had the luxury of leading the product development team over the years for the WKO analytics product for training peaks. And that's also been a luxury because not only I've been able to work with some amazing minds and groups and people, but, uh, it's been the R and D side of data analytics. It really it was great, you know, and the, the vision we had for the product that it really was just a big place to go and experiment, figure all this stuff out and learn. And to me, that's the best learning. So it was like, yeah, it was a cool job and leadership and software and all that stuff. But you also got to kind of just roll up your sleeves and get in there with all the data and the data stuff. So that really helped my coaching, right? You talk about this symbiotic relationship of that coaching, learning and exploring on that side in the mix and, and, and deep dive into data and analytics and over the years really has shaped my approach and philosophy to coaching. So that kind of leads us into a discussion about, you know, I think what is core to the sport right now is the relationship between data and coaching. And maybe a lot of our audience understands this, maybe a lot of them don't, but I'd like to outline the fact that cycling is, I would say pretty unique in that we have so much data right? We have so many devices and so many ways to quantify what's happening on the bike. Um, and 
I like to think of that in two large bins, grossly speaking. Um, the bin of what's happening during training, quantifying training load, right? And then the other side of that is looking at race demands and quantifying race demands. And then that sets up the paradigm of where your athlete is now and then training them for the demands of their event. That's the the arrow, the intention, the pointing the athlete towards their dream goal or objective, right? So when you have a clear understanding of what their dream goal or objective is, then you can train them for that. And maybe the simplest paradigm to make an example out of that is, uh, you know, I've heard some podcasts with Jim Miller. I haven't had him on my show yet. Maybe I'll, I'll wrangle him in at some point. But he talks about training Christian Armstrong for the Olympics and conveniently, you know, in, I think it was Rio, the TT court, if I remember correctly, she's won so many gold medals, it's hard to keep track. Um, but I think it was Rio where the course basically, like coincidentally, serendipitously had uh, a profile that pretty much matched like her local mountain in Boise. And so that was great. And so she just went out and smashed herself on this mountain, you know, multiple times that year and got faster and faster and faster. And then it ended up being in a lot of ways, the perfect training ground for her winning a gold in Rio in the TT. And I'll say, um, while we all like to gravitate towards that archetype of preparing an athlete for a specific event, most events aren't anywhere near that clear cut, right? You're talking about a mountain bike cross country race. You're talking about a cyclocross race. You're talking about uh, even a road stage race like American races like Tour of the Gila or Joe Martin or whatever, uh, GP Bose or, you know, stuff in Europe, let alone athletes who, you know, amateur athletes tend to have pretty clear cut goals. But when you're working with professional riders, a lot of times it's a moving target because they get on a program and they think they're preparing for this race, but then the team gets sick or uh, or a key rider on that team gets sick and they're no longer preparing for that. Uh, their schedule changes or maybe they're a rider who's, we'll say, lower on the totem pole, newer to the team, and they don't really know what their calendar is going to be per se, right? So they just have to prepare to be really good <laughs> for kind of a zone of, you know, in June, we'll say we're going to be really good in May and June and and then see what happens after that. We really don't know. It might be a grand tour, may not. It might be the tour, might be the Volta. Very different goals. Anyway, so I think all that's interesting. Um, how, how do you, uh, do you want to comment on that relationship of data and the sport? And then, well, broadly, I'd say, let's start with preparing the athlete, you know, looking at the athlete, examining where the athlete is. And then how do you sculpt that direction, that arrow towards their dream goal or objective? Like, that was a very broad question, but yeah, no, you actually said one or two things I, but I can, I can start with, and I think it will, in my opinion, kind of shed some light in the way I see things. So one of the things that you said, that's so important, right? We have a plethora of data in cycling and we actually have more good data than any other sport because of the, the biomechanical efficiency, the physiological efficiency of a person on a bike and how that plays out, that data aligns very, very well with performance. But another thing people don't think about enough when we have data, and this is where you know everything we have, right, is a strength and a weakness or a strength and a limiter. We have more data, but we actually have had the data and we, we tend to have all this data first. Meaning if you look at what other sports are doing now, professional sports, professional football, hockey, baseball, they're beginning to really use data in measuring stress and strain and, and, and fitness. And we've been doing this for years. But on the same side, that means in general, cycling, 
and then the other surrounding endurance sports, but it tends to be led by cycling because of the alignment of the, the data with the efficiency. The reality is we have to figure this stuff out first. So we get, we have a lot of cutting edge data in our sport. We have a tremendous amount of data and we've had to, as an, as an industry, as a sport, whatever you want to call it, right? We've had to plow ahead and figure out what's best to do with it. What we are starting to see now, right? And we've always done that in a way is we've had data that has measured stress on the system and strain response to exercise. And we have more and more data, right? That is now starting to manage the stress outside our exercise stimuli, the stress outside of our training time and the strain we're going under, you know, and all that stage. The good news is, um, well, I guess maybe the good bad news is, is we have a lot of that data coming. The good news is we're also in a realm right now where we have other sports using some of the same data. And it's funny, when I look at where the learning opportunities are and where big data usage is going, it's now starting to flip. We're learning from big team sports. We're learning from bigger organizations using and maybe even putting in more economic uh, energy into figuring out how to use that data. So we have this expanding data world. We started it here in cycling. It's expanded through all endurance sports. We have everybody using data. We have all this new data that we can utilize and then more different sports using it. So we are at the cutting edge. What to do with we as cycling coaches and athletes. <laughs> We're at the cutting edge. And that's awesome, but it's also very challenging, right? You know, what and how do we manage all this data? You're a question of, of how do we use, how does it fit into our system? I think that's a question every single coach is really asking themselves today mm-hmm. and better come to some solution, not in a right or wrong sense, but you better have a plan because it isn't going to stop. Our athletes are going to keep generating more information. They're going to buy more devices. We're going to put data into more things. We as coaches, it's our responsibility to start coming up with a a philosophy of data management and and how that impacts our coaching. Yeah, it's, yeah, I think that's super on point. I mean, we're talking about the the relevance of data or really the concept of signal versus noise, right? When we're drowning in numbers and and charts and graphs, it's like, what matters? What's going to actually impact the athlete's bottom line or performance. What are we looking at that's relevant versus what is like, this doesn't really matter. It's a lot of neat bar bar graphs and pie charts or whatever it is. And discerning that as a coach is challenging, but also directing the athlete. There's more cat herding happening because an athlete will read an article about the new, you know, core temperature device or, you know, the next uh, HRV monitor or whatever. They'll read a new article about how HRV isn't relevant, perhaps, right? And they're like, oh, I've been using this whoop for a year. Does this mean my data is useless? It's like, okay. So I I personally have a, a really basic litmus test I use for technology. Um, and maybe this could be applied to data. I haven't thought about it specifically, but my litmus is there's got to be three things a new piece of technology could offer you as a coach or the athlete. One, it's got to be actionable and easy to use right? Um, and a good example is of something that breaks that paradigm uh, is the all the, the gizmos that go on the handlebars that offer live CDA measurement, right? There's a few of those out there. I would, I would agree. And they're insanely complicated to use, like insanely complicated. And I'm, I consider myself kind of a data dork. I've been an SRM since 1995, like, and I tried to deal with one of these things for a while. And some of it was a Mac Windows thing, but still it was like, what is happening here? This is crazy. So 
Okay, if the thing's going to destroy time, energy, and mental RAM, then it's not useful to you. And you're the coach. You have a broader bandwidth for that than most athletes do. You ought, Theoretically, we ought to. But if we can't use it, how's the athlete going to use it? So one, it's got to be actionable, like easy to use, meaning it's got to take the data and and have it be sort of sucked into some sort of cloud for us both to look at without a whole hassle hoff of like cables and downloads and internet connection challenges and all these things, or or maybe more than that. Because most athletes won't, they won't use it if it's not actionable in that way. It's got to be easy to use. Um, two, it's got to be accurate. If we're getting wild, crazy Ivan data all over the place that we then have to filter through, right? Like some power meters give us spikes on uh, cross-country rides, for example. Every time the rider backpedals on a downhill, then you have to go through and filter all that data. And that's time and attention taken away. That's one example. But even worse is something where we don't even know if it's grossly accurate. And a good example of that might be HRV, right? There's a fair amount of debate as to which device and how you process the data, right? So it's like, hmm, are we, does this mean anything or is it just a bunch of noise? And then the third point for me is a new piece of technology has to either teach the athletes something they didn't know or help them refine an instinct or intuition to learn something about themselves, right? So assuming for a moment we do have accurate HRV if it's quantifying your recovery score accurately every morning when you wake up um, and that starts to teach the athlete uh, things about their habits of having a beer after a ride or getting to bed later versus earlier or whatever other behaviors they can start to correlate to a better recovery score or a worse recovery score. Maybe they have you know pizza one night and they wake up feeling great the next day or maybe it makes them feel like they're dragging a bag of bricks around on their bike. So it's got to be it's got to teach them something. Um and side note on that is my personal philosophy is we use technology to teach us things about intuition, but ultimately the important metric is your own intuition and understanding of your body. That's the most important metric of all. Like power is there to teach you about your output. It's not there. It's not the goal. I don't care if somebody sets a PR in a race or not. If they, the goal is performance in the race. So you win a race and your power sucks. We're not bummed out. <laughs> right? Now, if you smash new PRs all over the place and you get 66th place, okay, that's a learning moment. Anyway, uh, what do you think about my my litmus test for technology? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, you're smart to have a litmus test right there, right? In today's world, you've got to because there's so much stuff out there. I do take the same approach towards data, right? And this is just something I, I preach in my educational programs. Um, because I think it's one of the problems we have today with data, right? Data is not the answer. It just helps us make better decisions in our coaching. It's part of the art and the science that needs to come together in great coaching. What I see happening out there, because we have all this easy access to data and information and people who write articles and the internet and what's today's myth versus tomorrow's reality, right? We want to make data the answer. It is not. And you said something really, really uh, smart about the measurement, right? It's like we use data to make better decisions. So, wow, I have to decide what is going to be the focus of me training this athlete. What are the demands of their event? What are they capable of doing? What do I need to accomplish to get them in a winning position, right, to achieve? I can look at data and I can make better decisions using the data on how do I plan that athlete's efforts? How do I uh, 
to find very specific workouts? How do I have expectations of milestones and growth, right? But data doesn't tell me what to do. Data doesn't say, oh, this is easy. Here, just here it goes. I put a bunch of data in a pot, right? I stir it around, put a lid on, wait 10 minutes, open it up, and there's the training plan. It doesn't work that way. But I think people want to see it as data is that solution, right? And I actually think that's a barrier for coaches learning and growing. And, you know, something about measurement, like, and you just said it, but I, I say it the way I see it is when the measurement, and this is where data plays, right? When the measurement becomes the target, it's no longer a good measurement. Hmm. And right, everybody's going to listen to that. You have to think about what I just said for a moment, because it is a serious barrier for how we use data. We get a new piece of data, we read an article, HRV, right, or, or CDA analytics from a bike, from a device that is literally sitting in the air pocket of the bike. Um, and, and I'm not saying everybody should make their own decision on what's good and bad data to them, right? Mm -hmm. But we look at that data, then we suddenly are coaching everything. Oh, there's the measurement. Let's make that the target. And then you're just trying to make some measurement come true. You're basically taking the data and saying, oh, I have a measurement, so I'm just going to measure some more, and I'm going to make that measurement what I want the outcome of my coaching. Here's the outcome of your coaching, performance. And performance is a human element. It is dynamic. It takes multifaceted approach. It takes a whole lot of things working together that you're never going to boil back down to that measurement, right? The measurement, the data, it just helps us make decisions to create that dynamic uh, mixture that drives an athlete to performance success. Yeah. That's my philosophy on data. Mm. Excellent. Yeah, very well said. So, it, I mean, it makes me think also of the easy example, the um, the corpse to kick in the room maybe is, I don't know, that's a weird analogy, but is FTP. I mean, everybody's so FTP focused right now and it's such a, it's such a, a, a nexus for what people think will make them perform on the bike. And culturally, we're just so driven towards that. I think there's a lot of things pointing towards that. Um, you know, I'll beat up on, on Andy Coggin for a moment, who's, uh, I've known him for many years and had a relationship with Andy over various different projects and such. He tested me in Houston in a lab a million years ago. And, but he says it's an aerobic sport, damn it. And that statement is not untrue, but I also think there's like 15 bullet points that need to caveat that statement. So, but that, that statement represents, I think what a lot of people believe about the sport. We archetypally think of how do you win the sport of cycling? Many people, maybe you might even say most people, Imagine someone winning a road race, a stage in the Tour de France with a bunch of mountains. And so the association is, well, the bigger your threshold is, the more likely it is you're going to ride away from everyone on that giant hilltop finish and then put your arms in the air and celebrate. And that's the biggest, most prestigious victory of the tour other than winning the yellow jersey, of course. And archetypally, that's also not an untrue thing. I mean, that is sort of a very classic form of the sport of cycling, no matter what kind of discipline you focus on. Everyone can identify with that. That said... I think FTP is overweighted. I mean, there are 30, maybe 50 critical metrics or critical qualities that went into that victory. And, and even in the world of data, there are a bunch of metrics that fall into that. Things like the number of KJs that a rider can do before they have to perform at that high level on the, on the climb and how many accelerations they have to do and their fast twitch versus slow twitch muscle contributions and fat burning capacity and all these other things we can measure. But then there are other things that, of course, could also be measured, but we don't measure currently that are direct and critical impacts to performance. Simple examples, 
Um, can the rider put a rain jacket on without crashing? Can they go around a corner? <laughs> you know, if you can't corner at a world tour level, you can have this massive engine, this giant aerobic system, this super high VO2 or high FTP or whatever, but it won't matter. If you can't manipulate or maneuver yourself in a Peloton, you can't be in the right position at the bottom of the climb. Now, that doesn't apply to that many World Tour riders, but it does apply. It's it's a differentiating factor. I mean, this is why, you know, at the beginning of a critical climb in a classic, you know, Tom Boonen's in the right position and other riders aren't, right? Or Peter Sagan or whoever, pick your your classics rider. This is why at the bottom of the Poggio, the, the guys who know what they're doing made it to the front and the ones who didn't on that day, they screwed up, they made a mistake, they whatever. So this is where the cleaving of the performance really comes down to these fractions, but it's, but there's so many variables that play out on that. Um, so I think that's, I don't know, that's just me, um, um, extracting my opinion on, on the overemphasis of, of FTP. And it kind of grinds at me a little bit, but, and I think also Zwift culture plays a role in that. So many people are Zwifting. You said you've got a Zwift ride to do this afternoon. And what are you looking at on Zwift the whole day? You're looking at your Watts per kilo, right on the screen. So it just reinforces that. And, and this is one key gripe I have with modern data, and it's a bit of a challenge, but so many people think in terms of watts per kilo, and there are multiple problems with this. One is that what is watts per kilo? Again, to, to quote or paraphrase Andy Coggin, you know, all models have a domain of validity. The question is, what is the limit of that domain, right? So what is watts per kilo? It's a model of someone racing in a vacuum. It's literally a vacuum. And how many races are raced in a vacuum or let's say even close to a vacuum? Well, what's a vacuum? It's a really, really, really freaking steep climb. That's what it is basically, right? Now we're ignoring inertia and the force of gravity. Let's just take those out of the equation. Let's take all the little physics things out like rolling resistance to the tires and the chain and some other stuff. Let's take out, you know, again, fat burning versus glycogen utilization, all that. Let's just call it watts per kilo. And whoever has the highest watts per kilo will go fastest on the climb. But Okay, kilos, that's gross weight. That's not accounting for water weight, lean mass, or adipose mass, which are significant ways to alter that equation. So when we look only at gross weight, we're ignoring the fact that someone can gain lean muscle mass or lose, lose mean muscle mass by starving themselves, right? So this sort of plays into this equation. But the other problem is that, what, I don't know, 94% of all bike races, this watts per kilo model isn't that relevant because we're riding in an atmosphere, which means that we have watts per gram of drag that actually influence the rider's outcome, specifically in flat time trials or any time you're pulling through in the wind, which is most bike races most of the time, realistically. Like, yes, the most time is won or lost on the steepest parts of the course, but there's all these other factors that play into it. So really long way to say that I think we're, we've grossly underestimated a rider CDA and it, and it surprises me continuously how many newer riders or less experienced riders in the sport seem to be so focused in my observation on just making more power, making more power. And then secondarily is losing weight, losing weight, but they're riding around on the, on the hoods with the super upright position and their heads propped way above their torso on the flats because they haven't really intuited or understood that really what's more significant in that moment, if you want to go fast, is making a smaller hole in the wind. And make no mistake about it, being aerodynamic on a bike is an act of contortionism, right? I mean, look at world-level time trial riders. Like, they have to pull themselves into one of those little boxes and do all the things, turtled head. Anyway, 
So this is one area, a, a good area, I think, of where data kind of can shoe us perhaps in the wrong focus. Is that a way to say it? Um, yeah. Well, I think what, so, you know, to, to give what you're saying, what we've got to be careful when we use data because it's the way our minds want to work. It's the way we want things, right? We get trapped in this kind of reductionism philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, we have a whole bunch of data, right? If I put a whole bunch of data on the screen in front of us and we're like, wow, look at all these numbers, right? We tend to just want to focus on something. We see a pattern, we see something, we just focus on a very small subset. It's the way our brains want to process information. We do that in data. And that is one of the things that's going on now that's problematic is that we want to shave everything down to a very, uh, I don't want to call it simple, but a, a more singular not as multifaceted as we need to look at all this stuff approach because it's it's a little easier to process right it's a little easier to communicate to your athlete or your athlete to communicate back to you so it does simplify the process the problem is that is getting a little extreme now because there's like these aha moments we want to have like that are reductionism to say FTP is the only indicator we should track. Well, of course, that that's exactly what you're talking about. That's a reductionism in understanding the dynamics of our sport. And it's a habit. And we sit on Zwift and we go one pace and we monotone out, right? And we just smash out lots and that's what we're doing. The reality is the art of coaching, the art of using data is more complex. It's the ability to fight reductionism, Mm -hmm. and at the same time, fight over complexity Mm -hmm. so that you have this very actionable place. Those two meet in the middle, certain amount of reductionism, a certain amount. Now let's push the other side and be complex. But those items, and you said this earlier, they have to be actionable. Data plays the same way you see technology. You have to be looking at data and saying, in general, and that doesn't mean you shouldn't experiment with data, but the data that you use on a day-out, day-out basis, or day-in, day-out basis, should impact the decisions you're making to coach that athlete. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't impact your decision to, you know, what are we going to do tomorrow? What are we going to do next month? What are we going to do this year? If it's not playing a role in that, you should kind of just tuck it off to the side and not think about it too much. Because what you're doing is you are bringing in noise. Yeah. And that is damping down the signal. And that's not the same for every athlete, right? That actionable center point needs to be different from, you know, for each athlete. And that's why it's important for the coach to build that skill mm-hmm. because you're not going to build it one time and right and be like, oh, this time trialist does this same, my same data set, my approach, my actionable data set is the same for this time trialist as it is for this other athlete doing uh, a five-day uh, race across Alaska in negative 40 degrees, right? right? Those are two different things you're going to be looking at in the world. So the coach needs to be agile in finding that relationship in the data that they use successful. FTP is a good one. Like that's a constant one to me. That mm-hmm. is an excellent indication of metabolic fitness and capability. Put that in the mix and that's great. High FTP, you're going to win everything? Eh, probably not, right? <laughs> it's not that yeah. black and white. One tool right. in the tool bag. Cool. Okay. And um, so thinking for a moment also about data and the utilization and how it's changed the model of coaching in the sport, right? An analogy I've brought up before with some other coaches and um, guests on my podcast is the analogy of the high jumper, 
And I think cycling training has really changed. And I point this out to my athletes a lot, but it's an easy, it's, I think that data provides us with a potentially a trap to fall into. And that trap is sort of the, it's like, um, how I like to phrase it is like a candy grab, you know, it's holidays, holiday season now, as, as of, uh, this recording, we're December, 2021. So we probably, most of us have little bowls of whatever, or we just crossed over the Halloween threshold and we had a bowl of little mini Snickers bars or Skittles or whatever, you know, other kryptonite, uh, is existing in our living room furniture. And so you walk through the living room to do whatever, get go ready for your ride. And it's like, Ooh, there's that Snickers bar. Should I have one of those or not? And that's a candy grab. You, you take it out of the bowl and you pop in your mouth and go, Ooh, that's tasty. That's yummy. And you get a little dopamine hit or whatever. And it's the same thing, I think, when we use power meters, and particularly when we're looking at a mean max power curve, because it's really tempting to go out, especially one that's as granular as in WKO, because it's very tempting to go out and say, well, this climb's about a minute 45 long. And if I just go smash it, I can probably set a new best power for the last 12 months, right? You always got to reference the time duration to see if it's what you're talking about. If I just go smash this climb just, just for a moment, and then there's this maximal effort. And then the next day you're thinking, okay, it's going to be convenient if I set this, uh, Strava segment because I feel good. And I did that little bit of work yesterday and I've been wanting to go after this six minute segment or 12 minute segment or whatever. That's not that well attended. So I'm going to do that. And so between these types of metrics where we get this kind of candy grab, sort of sensation of that sense of satisfaction. When you come back, you upload your file and you look at the mean maximum power graph, you go, oh, new PR for the last six months or 12 months or, or longer, right? Three years. It's like, that's cool. That's the most power I've made in the last 720 days for some obtuse amount of time, four minutes and 41 seconds, <laughs> but it's a new PR. So it, it's fun. But the problem with this type of training is that it ends up peppering our rides with all these maximal efforts to feel good about ourselves. And it sort of, it's a paradigm that didn't exist 15 years ago before we had this data or this technology to look at, at training in this way. Because in the past, when someone went up a little local rolling hill that was a minute and a half near their home that they'd ridden a thousand times, they had no Strava and they had no power meter. The, the data analysis wasn't sophisticated enough to know if we made a new PR for a minute and 31 seconds. So they didn't know. So then therefore there wasn't that carrot there to kind of tempt them to go for it. And the way this comes back to the high jumper analogy is simple. You know, let's pretend that you're an athlete who's practicing the high jump and you do it for five years or 10 years, we'll say, and then you go and win a world championship medal for the first time in your career. Then you take a week or two weeks off, hopefully afterwards, and you go on a beach vacation and drink a few margaritas or whatever you're going to do. And then it's time to come back and start training because you're still an athlete and you're going to go to worlds next year, or maybe the Olympics or that following year. So you go into the first gym session after your two week break. Do you put the high bar at one quarter inch higher than the level you just jumped at for your last world championship medal? Because you always want to get better. Well, no, of course not. And I think almost any athlete would intuitively see that we don't just put the bar an eighth of an inch higher or three millimeters higher every single time we jump. It, it, that's not the way human beings work. It's not the way progression works. There's, it's not linear. We want it to be linear. We want certainty in our data. And it would be really, that's the way we tend to think of things happening. Like, yeah, this week I'll do my four by five and next week I'll be five watts stronger. 
And then next week I'll be eight watts stronger. And next week I'll be three watts stronger. We all like it to be that way, but it, it, in my experience, it rarely works out that way. It's very stochastic. It's very, sometimes things get worse and then they, you have this random jump and et cetera. Right. So, but when we, when we're going out and training all winter long, all spring long, all summer long and all fall long, and we're racing Zwift a lot. And then we have these candy grab type of metrics that are easy to see. And it, it gets us into that mode of kind of always setting PRs effectively in some form, maybe not, maybe not directly, but in some form, we're raising that bar a quarter inch every time we go to train. And I mean, is, am I thinking about this the way you're thinking about it? You probably have a different way of, of phrasing it or um, sculpting it verbally. What do you think about all that? So I, I agree, right? If you asked me what sort of is the biggest challenge we have now in cycling coaching and the coach athlete relationship or in the self coached athlete is exactly that approach in the, uh, in the desire to motivate people, right? Whether you say that's Strava or Zwift or Zwift racing or whatever these things are and the desire to get people to engage in a product, to engage in a, in a system, we're using that, that reward system a kudos, a new PR, a record, uh, a virtual color jersey, right? And yeah. we do that. And what it's led to, which is actually something I'm literally fighting against more and more, and I believe I'm right. <laughs> Everybody can have their own beliefs, right? More is not more. Like if I could just go on Swift right now and like flip a switch and suddenly I had a microphone and everybody would have to listen to me, that's what I would say. Everybody currently right now, more is not more. Thank you for listening. And I turn off my switch, right? Dude, because what I see so strong and I, you know, I have my online side of education, all the things I do online, I get this massive amount of influx of information. I cannot honestly even keep up with it. And when you look at the stuff people are doing, they're like, hey, Tim, I'm doing this. Do you think this is a good idea? And it's like, basically, I could just write, oh, more is more. Oh, yep, they're doing more. Oh, and that person's doing more, right? Great training is about having good principles of training. It's about understanding the physiology. It's like understanding a, there's a general adaptation syndrome of the way your body responds to exercise stimuli. And I can tell you one secret. More is not more, right? That is not in the physiology. I mean, it can be for a very short little window and you would see improvements, but absolutely not, right? And this is where it gets hard, Colby, I think for the athlete. And the athlete has to accept this and actually make it easier for coaches. We are in a world today of instant results. I want to buy something. I go to Amazon and it comes in three days, maybe five right now. Right? But bam, I, done. I, I want a piece of information and I don't want to have to learn it. I look it up on the internet. Bam, I can find somebody else's answer, right? We want the same in our athletic performance. We want to jump on a bike. And it's like, man, I, I've decided I'm going to train and I'm going to race or I'm going to try to accomplish something and you want it tomorrow, right? And we get jacked up with that desire. Then we run into all these systems, all these articles that, that preach that are kind of bullshitty. Sorry, I don't have a better way to say it, right? They preach all these magical solutions, right? And, or you go online and you're smashing out your, your, your KOMs and you're smashing out your PRs and Swift all the time. You know, it's got to hurt more is more. Mm -hmm. Here's my simple answer. And I promise you, I'm right. You're doing it wrong. And you need to find somebody who's willing to tell you, a good coach, 
who's willing to start that conversation with, you're doing it wrong. Once you get over that, and then you're willing to listen as the athlete, right? Then you can start the appropriate drive for true performance improvement, maybe even achieving all your big goals. But until you let go of that mentality, I need a kudos every day. I need that KOM every day. But you don't understand, Tim. I know I should be training, but Zwift has seven races this week. It's a seven race series. I need to do the seven race series because that'll make me faster. And then I say to people, it's not going to make you faster. It's like, I always joke this, Colby, right? Like if you go way back, I'll, I'll date myself back to the old Willy Wonka movie. Willy followed the seven bad kids around. And every time they did something wrong, he'd stand in the background going, no, don't please stop. <laughs> I, I do that. I watch people do this. And it's like, and it's like, it sounds so arrogant. I, you know, it is easy to judge things and I don't want to be that person. I think people should find their own answers, but mm. don't fall victim to all that noise of harder, better. Here's a great article about just do high intensity every day and you get faster, right? Here's the solution. There are general principles you need to follow if you want to get peak performance. There's physiology, there's process, there's things that just have to get implemented. There is no shortcut. There's optimization of that journey, and a good coach uses their art, their knowledge, their mastery, and data and science to get you there to optimize the journey, but there's not a shortcut. When an article starts out like, here's a super, you know, set of workouts you can do to really, you know, add 50 watts to your FTP this winter, print it out, crumble it up at a ball and use it to start your Christmas fire. End of story. It's probably <laughs> not going to be a good article. There's no shortcut. Mm. Yeah, I think this relates to uh, an overriding culture of, we'll say, extremism. Look at. Red Bull games or Red Bull challenges, you know, look at uh, Everesting, right? Or as a, as a phenomenon in cycling and people and, and extreme events, things like uh, Spartan races or all these things that used to be unthinkable are now relatively common. We can all look at them on YouTube. So it points towards this more is more mentality of if you don't do something that's completely David Goggins level, then it's not even worth talking about. And so people dream up this idea that they're going to be this warrior if they're going to push themselves and find out what their limits are. And I've seen lots of writers try experiments like this and they find their limits, you know. Um, unfortunately, it just tends to come in some sort of form of tendonitis or, you know, extreme illness. But yeah. <laughs> You know, it's funny. I get this question. I get, when people ask me the more more question, I always get this question. Like, dude, I mean, what's that secret workout? One way or another, right? Everybody thinks it's one salute. Like, if I just knew that, like, that secret professional workout, like, yeah. how, did you, how did you get somebody to a world championship? How did you accomplish? What's that secret workout? And I always give them the same answer. All right, here it is, but don't share it. It's my JDTW workout. And they're like, JDTW. But I don't, I just write that, right? Because they'll always respond back like, oh, that sounds awesome. What is that? It stands for just do the work. There is no shortcut, right? There's my secret workout. I mean, yeah. literally, I mean, we have scale. I mean, as coaches, we have workouts that we do and we find effective in situations. Don't get me wrong. But it won't be magic in a bottle. If I told people like, you know, if I give somebody random on the internet, like a hard workout that, that one of my professional athletes did, it might kill them. Or 
who knows, might make them a little faster, but I don't know, right? It really is the bigger picture of following the principles of exercise, following the physiology, good training optimization, all of those aspects. Yep. Yep. Maybe another way to think about that is simply that training is, it's so frequently about context, right? Because that's what would defeat someone who's a, you know, an aspiring pro, but they're rising through the ranks and maybe they've just got their cat too. And you go give them a workout that you gave to one of your highest level athletes, it might flatten them. You're right. There's a chance that it might be this breakthrough thing where they start smashing Watts all over the place. That's it's possible. Occasionally that happens. But even if that's a case and you stretch a rider that much and they handle the load, you, you can only stretch a rider so often, right? Because that's extreme stress. That's super maximal stress, you might say. And I've, I've used that technique in my own training at times. Um, you could also call it shock training or something to that effect. And I've used it most of the time when I've used it, it backfired and I was just flat or fatigued or got the flu or just sucked. And there are lots of races in my career where I sucked because I was convinced that I just needed this extra hard three-day block or even to tack one hard day on the end of a block or squeeze one more hard day in, in the last few days before my race, because that was what was going to turn the corner. And that can be a tricky one because there are moments where you can add a giant workout and it can turn the corner. I specifically remember an interview with Connie Carpenter talking about how when she won gold in LA, she did that exact thing. She was training and training and training and felt like it wasn't quite there, wasn't quite there. And then she just had this intuition. She needed to go to the mountains and smash herself for a couple days and she did. And then she rested because we don't actually get stronger when we train hard. That's when we get weaker. Right. And she rested and she bounced back and then she went to LA and, and the rest is history. And that occasionally does happen. And I've experienced that, but man, that's, that's a roll of the dice. It requires a lot of experience. And also I think ultimately we have to recognize this is, I think what you said earlier was really important that a coach has to balance the art with the science, right? The, the innate understanding, the experience, the intuition, the feeling of what's happening with a client and looking at data to help support that decision or support a decision you're making about a training direction or a type of effort or specific types of workouts or when to back off and, or when to push a little more that the data supports that. So that equation of those two things is really crucial in the recipe of how to coach an athlete. And if we're too reliant on one or the other, then we're probably missing part of the part of the picture, right? Could not agree more. It's an art and a science, right? Putting all that together. And I think, so you think about this idea, you know, what's happening in data to kind of flip back to that conversation is you have the battle between knowledge and mastery happening, right? You really do. And we've seen this. So one of the things when you have technology, right? And this goes back to my pre- cycling data world, right? And technology world. Technology always comes at a rate that outpaces usage. Mm-hmm. Meaning we don't we're like, wow, we can do this and let's create a piece of tech. That's very rare. Oftentimes it's like people, the minds behind creating technology and this one are like, I think this is going to be useful. Let's create it and see, right? And then they build something and they have a new data format or they build a unique model and they do cool stuff. And they're not hundred percent sure how it's going to get used. But yet, you know, they strap on their tie and they come on out and they present it to the public like, ta-da, here is my device. And they hope that it will get traction. They hope that the user content will define the purpose of the technology. 
And that is so important. And, and so many devices that we have are literally, that's what they were. They came out and said, ta-da, we can measure this, right? And then people said, that's awesome. That's awesome. And for some amount of time, it used to be a slower cycle in years. We'd be looking at that data and say, or that technology, what the information it was supplying to us and say, how can we use this? How can we apply it? In the old days, let's say, you know, back to heart rate monitors, not, not that that's that long ago, right? But um, we had heart rate monitors and that was dominant for a long time, right? And then we started seeing power meters, not the power meters sort of weren't around, but they became accessible. You know, you had SRM, you had PowerTop, you had certain companies leading the way early and making them, putting them in the hands of people. Think about how many years when those things first came out, right? We're like, oh, well, the data is cool. What do we do with it? I don't know. Let's just look at it for a while. Yeah. Right? And then eventually we start going, hey, I see a pattern. Now, Colby, think about this, right? And this is the challenge for all coaches. Stuff comes to the market so fast. And that cycle lives and dies so fast if that product is going to vet itself or not. I'm, I work at times because of my relationship on the soft side, software side of people bringing product to market. And they just say, hey, Tim, can you help me give me some advice? And I said, it better work. Mm-hmm. And you better have some clarity to its purpose. Mm-hmm. Because without those two, and this is what you were saying earlier about you know, your, uh, how you kind of quantify advice, devices and if they'll work for you. If you don't have those two today in the world, yes, the world goes, aha, this is really cool, right? And they jump on that data for about three months. And then it's like literally letting the air out of the room. All the air comes out of the balloon. It goes around the room, right? And it's yeah. done. And you move on to the next device. I think device manu- technology manufacturers are really learning that lesson right now. And what mm-hmm. I think you're going to see in the next wave of device metrics coming out are thinking beyond that. And I'll give you an example, right? One of the projects that I've been involved with, which I'm going to be a little vague with on purpose. Um, mm-hmm but a, a uh, glucose monitors. I've worked mm-hmm. with some teams that have had reasons to, to monitor glucose beyond just performance because there was some limitations to their performance, let's just say. Um, so I've been in the glucose monitoring kind of tech and understanding that for, for years. And now we're seeing that really come into the Peloton. The glucose monitoring is going to have some really cool impacts. And I I think some of them are going to be overblown a little, and some of them are going to be effective, right? And we'll let the world determine. But here's what we do know. It works. It's easily accessible. It really is easy. I, I've tested it and used it with my athletes already, and um, some we've gone on to use it in certain phases. Some we did the testing and learned some stuff and maybe not using it every day. Mm-hmm. Um, but the data, it, it's an easy process. It works. The data is actually actionable, right? It can be actually extremely actionable if you could use it in a race, maybe or not, but we'll mm-hmm. let the UCI work that out. Um, right. But the reality is, I think we're going to see more that thinking of bringing glucose monitoring to sport has been five years in the development. I think people are slowing down in the technology development and they're thinking, wow, if we come into the game and it doesn't, it's not relevant, we're going to flame our device out. No one's going to buy it. And right. So I think we're seeing that technology. Remember, technology outpaces usage, but it's also we as the users, the coaches and the athletes 
as we figure it out, it's got to help us make decisions and actions. It's got to be accurate, right? It's got to work for what it's supposed to do. I think we're really seeing technology evolve into that phase where the devices are being more well thought out like that. Mm, I hope so. I mean, thinking about your statement, technology always outpaces usage. I I think that's a really crystal clear point that needs to be emphasized. And that just doesn't, uh, that doesn't only apply to things like continuous blood glucose monitors or power meters. It applies to mobile phones, to Facebook, to Instagram, right? Textbook examples. I mean, when Facebook was invented, it, it didn't, I don't think anyone knew what it was going to morph into over time and how those algorithms would change the capture of human attention and all those things that happen, right? And email is another great example. I mean, think about it. Like back in the day, you used to have to write a letter and stick a stamp on it and wait a week and then wait another week for the person to write you back and all that. And now it's like instantaneous communication and wow, look how efficient things are and look how much we can get done. But do we? Because now every human on the face of the earth, almost probably without exception, not saying I know all the people, but most people will say on the earth, like part of their daily to-do list is managing email. And that didn't used to be a thing. 25 years ago, email wasn't a thing you on your to-do list. So now we're all overloaded with this stuff. So it's a good example of how technology can morph into something that we didn't quite know We didn't know what it was going to become. I don't think the inventors even necessarily knew that because as the human organism has a new relationship with technology, it evolves in unpredictable ways, right? How are people going to respond to that data? What emotive consequence will there be in that data? And that's, I think that's super true with power because there, you hear about riders or I have coached riders who just seem to be, you know, staring at their head unit all day long, Chris Room style and relentlessly judging themselves off of how good they are or aren't on that day. And if they have a preconceived notion that 300 watts is good and 290 is bad, for example, for a given duration, then they're riding around at 290 and things feel really hard. And then there's this mental sort of spiral of crappiness that goes downhill in the, well, I'm not good enough. I start to feel bad. And then you you make less power because you get uh, a neurotransmitter response to that yuckiness that gets amplified. And this you know, is that's a, a classic. Feedback. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. That's a classic that's okay. example of what I said earlier. When, when the measurement becomes the target, right? Exactly. It no longer is a good measurement. It ceases to be a good measurement because suddenly it's head down. I'm staring. I'm trying to make this. And then you're right. Maybe the, uh, the measurement is the target. So I'm looking at all times, but all these other negative things can come out from that. So it's not a good measurement because I'm just simply manipulating. You know, you make a good point, and I think this is one of the flaws of power. You know, think about it this way too, right? Because there's a dual side. There's an other side of that when the measurement becomes the target. Mm-hmm. So when um, you go back to, to Coggins' days, right? And I think he really did a lot of great things for the sport. And one of the things, but he did things that people didn't quite want to accept. And here mm-hmm. was one which I wish people would have listened to better. When he created FTP and and training levels, what he called levels at the time, he said time and time again, they're descriptive, not prescriptive. Prescriptive. Yep. And he lost that battle because the reality, right? We as coaches immediately saw that and like, wow, we can prescribe really well now. So no matter how many times he said that in the background, we're like, no, no, we're using it for prescription. Mm. Now what happens as we've seen more data, more stuff, all every athlete in the world training with power and they want, we have Garmin training peaks, everybody's doing structured workouts, right? And we build a workout 
and, and then there are little blue boxes and perfect little squares with perfect little numbers. And then somebody loads that workout to their Garmin and then they go out and they execute it. Like, well, I can't start the interval. The machine didn't beep. You know, it's like yeah. we become robots. To, and if we don't exactly achieve a number, like we have to stay in the structure, like do an experiment. And, and like, I, I've literally seen this happen in a, online programs go out and take all that structure out and watch what people do just delete the blue parts right and they're like i don't know how to do this it's like you can't just look at time and say wow at 15 minutes in i need to do some intervals right <laughs> so the reality is it limits us in that structure because reverse the paradigm what if i'm going out and i am man my fitness is moving I, I, i'm in one of those great training cycles just everything's coming together i'm rocking and rolling i have a great workout day and my Garmin is telling me my head unit device, whatever head unit, because it has a structured workout, I need to do exactly 300 to 320 watts for this interval. Right. And I'm like, man, I could smash this today. Mm -hmm. Why don't you? Is it because this, now don't get me wrong. You shouldn't always just blow away your coach's prescription. Maybe there's a reason or maybe you're feeling better. It's perfectly okay to go to 325 or 330. That's a relationship. If you're self-coach or with a coach, you, you decide. Like I write workouts for my athletes and I have a target. Here's your range of watts. Not always, I don't use zones, but here's a range of watts. And here's the rule. If today you're feeling really good, don't do more watts. Let's slide in an extra interval or two. Sometimes mm -hmm. I want more of a fatigue resistance. I want to deepen their resiliency. I want to get more. And this is usually by what phase of training way. Right. There's other phases of training where I might be like, oh, if you could do 20 more watch, smash it, you know, just go out there and crush it. But yeah. that's the relationship I have. I set that parameter with my athlete in advance. They go out and they know there's a zone, there's a target, right? But they're still interpreting. A question you asked earlier, you had kind of made this, what's the most important piece of data that we have in our coaching tool? And I know you'll agree with this, the athlete themselves. The performing athlete yes. is the most important data we have. All the data they generate, that's analytics, right? That's helping us make better decisions. That athlete performing in the moment and them having good guidance and control, them having a proper mindset, not staring at the computer trying to make exactly 312.5 watts because there's a little blue box on their computer telling them that's my number. As a coach, and I, I'm sure you do the same thing, we teach our athletes how to do intervals. We teach them how to listen to those feelings and adjust the prescription in the right uh, philosophy. Then we take that data that they've generated by saying, I felt great and I did this, or I felt horrible and I only did this. We reanalyze, we create new hypothesis of training, tweak our formats, change the stimuli, whatever you're doing, but that's the data cycle we need to be in. If the athlete is using the measurement as the target, they kill that data cycle. Yep. You know, think yep. about that, how powerful it is in coaching. Mm. Yeah. So many moments to, to, to teach. Uh, I mean, fundamentally coaching is a black box problem, right? We're putting in an input. That input is training load, but we as coaches are coaches are focused on the training load. But the reality is that there's also all types of other load going into that black box because all stress summates. So the fight with your wife, the dog who was barking at the raccoons, humping in your yard all night and killed your sleep. The fact that you, you know, whatever, 
your um, power went out at 1030 at night or your smoke alarm started beeping. That happened to us a couple weeks ago where it did the random thing at three in the morning and there's a piece of dust in there or whatever. And it's like, okay, now we're figure out which one and all that. All these stresses, work stress, life stress, family stress, holidays, they all go into that same box with training. And then we get an output, we get a result. That result is the how the athlete performed the workout on that day. And you're absolutely right. We have to teach our athletes to interpret what's happening. I like to think of it as a triangle. And in that triangle are three points on the corners. Uh, one is power, one is heart rate, and one is perceived exertion. And all three of those are sort of used to, I'll say, triangulate what's happening with the athlete. The power is the output, right? The immediate output, the heart rate is the response to load or a response to load and not just load on the bike, but global load, hydration load, glycogen load, heat stress, you know, how much stress you got going into the workout, you know, hormone balance, all those things, time of day, etc. And then we have perceived exertion. How does it feel? You know, 300 watts at 158 beats a minute might feel on one day like you're flying, like you've got no chain on your bike. And another day you're dragging a bag full of rocks behind you. And, and this is where comments come in. And I know you've mentioned this in many of your teachings and webinars too, that data without comments is kind of useless. It's like numbers without context. It doesn't tell me anything. I have to know, were you having a no chain day or were you literally yanking teeth out of your face with pliers to get that 300 watts out for, for 10 minutes or whatever duration it was? And this is highly important. This is significant context for the coach to understand how the athlete is handling the load. Um, and I think that's, that's just a crucial point to drive home. The other point that you mentioned was really interesting is you said that you don't really use zones. Uh, you use level, uh, sorry, how did you describe it? Ranges? You said I, I apply ranges, correct? A range. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm doing some work with the team EF coaching platform and we kind of also sat down and looked at it and said, okay, how do we want to describe this, this, um, output, this intensity spectrum is what we decided to use as a spectrum because Zones, I think one of the, the problems with zones is that it tends to make people believe that the, that everything's cleaved into these really crisp zip codes, you know, like at 294 Watts, you're below threshold. And then at 296, you're above and at 296 or higher, you're burning only glycogen. And that's just not the way the body works, right? Like, like everything is blended. Everything's a spectrum. And so physiologically, this is how the body sort of handles the equation. And so we have, we need to understand that, but also I think having that rigid, um, structure around a workout target, I'll say I'm, I'm, I think, I don't know how other coaches coach their athletes. I've obviously had conversations with other coaches, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, but I, I'm pretty sure I'm in the extreme minority in that I really don't prescribe workouts in even ranges necessarily. I use descriptive language. And, and so if I ask someone to do an eight minute effort and I tell them maximal, the answer is the highest average you can maintain for eight minutes, given the total context of the workout, which is really important because if I give you three by eight with 12 minutes easy between each eight minute interval, or I give you three by eight with two minutes easy, that's different. And it has a different training effect or intent, but it also will have a different um, impact on how the athlete can perform the efforts, because clearly if they've got 12 minutes between each eight minute effort, they can go deeper in each individual effort and achieve a different impact. Right? So I try to be very descriptive in my training, but I, 
I rarely, if ever, give someone a target. I might, if they're really hung and they can't get it, I'll look at the data and say, okay, I think we're shooting for plus or minus, you know, 320 on these, but really go feel it. I want you to feel what this effort is. And and in, and inherent in that coaching method is a an intimate understanding of what I mean when I say tempo or maximal aerobic power or threshold or whatever terms we're using, right? That, that essential, that has to be crystal clear that language and that path of communication, but that can be challenging for some athletes because they do want to tick that box and they want to have the workouts be prescribed and say, I was supposed to do 315 for five minutes and I did that. And therefore the workout is a success. I can check that box and I can, the box turns green or whatever, not yellow, not red. I've had athletes literally write me and say, I don't like training peaks because it gives you the green, yellow, red. And man, those red days just make me so mad. It's like, <laughs> okay, I hear what you're saying, but can we come out of fifth grade, please? Like, I'm not a teacher. I'm not smacking you on the back of the hand because you did your workout incorrectly. I'm also not going to give you gold stars for making 315 watts because that wasn't the objective. The objective of the training was for you to feel the right amount of output based on our description and try to hit the right, we'll say load, which usually targets a particular energy system, I might say. And that's the, that's the objective of the workout. So if you did that in one day, you, your Watts were way up here and another day they were down here. That's all information. That's all useful load. So look, one of the things that I teach our coaches in, in, in our company is right. And I guess I'm gonna have to explain it, but <laughs> focus and feel equal the measurement, mm. right? Focus. Why are we doing what we're doing? What are we trying to accomplish? What purpose is it serving within the paradigm of training? Um, feel, how does that make me feel? <laughs> Am I thrown up on the side of the road? Am I happy and cruising along? Whatever, focus and feel. The outcome of being able to understand those two elements of an interval set or a workout or whatever, that's the measurement. The measurement is the outcome. It's the output mm -hmm. of the relationship of those two things that you're trying to accomplish. It is so easy to fall into the, the purely descriptive of a number. Now, look, let's be honest. We both coach a lot of athletes. It is, you got to give some guidance because there's times it is important to the athlete that they're checking off, right? That I've got my accomplishment. I did that set of, I mean, because I got my seven intervals done at the power target my coach expected me to do. Yes, right? That's part right. of the psychological side. All training is both physiological and psychological. And part of that is, how the athlete self-motivates, how they build confidence, how they uh, use those elements to prepare for performance. So you want to do both. To me, when you're looking at it right, it starts with the data approach. Like people will ask me, and you even asked me in, in an email back and forth about like, what data charts do you use, right? Mm -hmm. I never answer that question specifically because one, I think people should learn and figure out their own flows. But here's what I do do, and this plays back to the point that you're making. I break all my, my, my dash, my charts, the information, the data I'm looking for into four kind of categories, right? One is measurements. So let's keep that simple. How many watts? What did your heart rate do? How fast did your, you, know, you pedal? Let's just talk the basics, the stuff that we all will generally know. It's the core of the way we measure or quantify training. 
whether we're quantifying load or quality or, or compliance or whatever, but it's the basics. Mm-hmm. The second is what I call metrics. This is as we compile data and we begin to utilize things like models, like WKO uses Andy Coggins' power duration model, which was designed to give us insight into physiology, not predict your FTP. It wanted to give us ideas like Pmax and anaerobic capacity and and FTP, but modeling those out, it gives us some insight of the whole 360 athlete. Those outputs are metrics, right? What is your Pmax? What is your FTP? When we, those are just giving me. So, like a measurement tells me what, like what happened, right? What what's the load? What's this? A metric gives me insight into why. To your physiology, or this is changing, right? It just gives me that. But the other two that I think everybody ignores, but I know you pay close attention to these two, is the third one is environment. What is the training environment of the athlete? A lot of people miss this. And it's once you start working with a group of professional athletes, you learn this lesson really quick, right? Because they're moving all around the world, right? And their environment's changing all the freaking time. Mm -hmm. And whatever was, oh, this is a great target yesterday. And then they're, you know, (laughs) thousand miles away. And it's not such a great target because suddenly they're at 8,000 feet of altitude or suddenly right. 98 degrees in the desert, right? And, and, or, or 98% humidity. So you always have got to be thinking, and for some, and for a lot of coaches, right? That environment, the athlete's environment doesn't change, but like I have one chart on top of my environment set that basically says, what altitude did you wake up this morning at? <laughs> what was the temperature, <laughs> right? And I'm going to look at the weather. Like I literally pull the weather into my WKO. I want to know that. I want to know that right off the bat. And then finally, which is the softest one, but likely the most important, is the condition. And what I mean by my condition charts, I'm talking about the athlete's condition. How did they sleep? How did they eat? Where's their life's less? What are their feelings? What's happening in their mental side? And we can use systems to to score this, but it's also subjective. I'm, you know, Want to, want to improve your adaptation to exercise stimuli, sleep better and more, right? Whether you're going to use HRV tracking to convince you to stop drinking three beers before you go to bed or, right. or whatever your device is, doesn't matter. I'll absolutely tell you, if you sleep better and more, you will get better. Your training will be more impactful. You might be doing mm-hmm. the wrong training, but it will be more impactful. You'll adapt better to the stress and stimuli you're putting on the system. Learn mm-hmm. to relax more, downregulate more. Control your sympathetic, parasympathetic response through lifestyle changes. That conditional set, right? So you have measurement, metrics, environment, and condition. If you compartmentalize your thinking and manage the athlete in some little overlapping circle of those things, right? Right at the core, you know, you can make the circles and where do they overlap? That's where great coaching happens. My opinion, right? Exactly. That's great coaching. And when you just boil it down to the measurement, it's not enough. Mm-hmm. Now, what you're measuring and what you're looking at as a metric, and that's on you, right? When we designed WKO, we wanted to solve two problems. We had WKO3. And WKO3 did a really good job of showing you the measurements. I went X watts. My heart rate beat at X beats per minute. And my cadence was that. Mm-hmm. We wanted to solve two problems. One, we wanted to individualize training. We wanted to make sure we gave people the tool to move off a standard set of objectives 
based on one number, FTP, go back to your original point. Andy always knew it was a limiter, but he also knew when he created it, and it, it was genius, to be honest with you. When you go back to the day, we didn't know what to do with power. Go back to my point that technology was outpacing. We didn't know what to do with it. Himself and a group of people working with him on the internet, right? And the old wattage group figured it out together. So it really was a great creation that aged out of usability. Not It's not usable, but there's so much more now. So we just know more now. We learned about the technology better. And we know we need to look broader. So we wanted to solve that problem in WKO through modeling, bringing in a power duration model that gives us insight into the 360-degree athlete. All right, that's uh, absolutely something we wanted to solve. The second one was tougher, right? And this is where it's a challenge. And if I would, could go back to this moment, because it was my project to lead, I might have went a different way. <laughs> I'm glad we went the way we did. We would have had more commercial success. I'll be really blunt. Um, uh-huh. But we stayed away from the commercial pressure and we did what we thought was right. We sat in a room one day. It was like a two-day session. And we said, look, we got to have create this like WK3. We need to know all the charts people are looking like looking for. And we started making, you know, big whiteboard sheets, you know, the game, and you, you have your sticky huge sheets and you stick them on the wall. And we spent a day and a half doing that. We had thousands of charts. Like we need this chart, we need power, we need this new chart, we need that new chart, we need to track all the, because by the time we started rethinking software, there was so much more. Even then there was so much more. What year was this for context? This would have been uh, that was 2012 or 13. I think okay. we had that meeting. So okay. it's like we were really exploding into data, but we were just on the cusp of it then. And we saw it coming. And I remember Kevin Williams, who's the driving genius behind the development of all WKO. He did the original one. He did WKO4. He did WKO5. He just said, look, I got a better answer. There's no way we can meet this need. We could program. We'll be making, we'll be programming charts for the rest of our life every day as fast as we can. And we need to give an analytics engine to the team. We We need to let users define their usage. Just give them good guidance, but give a tool where they can learn, they can process all this new data coming to the system. Because Kevin recognized what I recognized, and it's a place him and I have always gelled. Technology outpaces use. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to write software that somehow got ahead of that. How the hell would we know? (laughs) You know what I mean? So Uh we said, all right, let's just put Andy's model in here. And it was a really good model, and it gives us some great metrics and tools to balance our our coaching against. But then we wanted a user-defined experience. That user-defined experience right now bumps heads against everything you and I are currently talking about. Because the internet and the easy access to just tell me what to do, just give me the information, right? Counters. And I say it in so many of my sessions, I'm sure you hear me say it. And people wince when I say it. Literally, I don't even post as much anymore because I take crap for it every time. You need to figure it out because there's no shortcut in learning either. You want to be a great coach? Learn. And that means you're going to fail. That means you have to use data as part of your experiment. Measure yourself too, right? You don't learn just from some knucklehead like me saying, hey, here's how you coach. Let me write my seven coaching steps down for you. And suddenly you'll you'll be a magic coach and you'll be working at the world tour level. Dude, how many years have you cut your teeth to get where you are now? How many failures did it take to understand what not to do? And then even once we understand all those things not to do, we understand even if we we're doing it all right. There's no guarantee of success. When you talk about human physiology, 
there are too many caveats, right? There's too many variables. All we can do as coaches is learn from all those mistakes, create the best environment for success, and then quietly behind the scenes, right, cross our fingers and hope for the best. <laughs> that's what we do. Um, I'm not saying that's a bad, that's good. I mean, we, what are you doing? You put an athlete in the best path for success, but you can't do it. If I was a coach who could do it every single time, every athlete would be mine, right? I'd be the only coach right, in the world. Right. Everybody would work for me. Reality is it just doesn't work that way. And that's the mm -hmm. role data plays in there. And we gave people a tool in WKO to find that path. And right now, not only does that clash go on, there's inf do this secret work. Do it's a it's a battle. There is no shortcut for people. You want to learn to be a great coach. You have to evolve behind just beyond just knowledge. I'm looking it up on the internet. It says do these intervals, and you've got to take on mastery. And I've tried all those. I read all the articles. I've tried it all. And that uh, four to five athletes, yeah, I really screwed them up. <laughs> but on that fifth one, I got it right. <laughs> now I really understand how to do it. You know, and it, it sounds flippant. I don't want, because my athletes are listening. You guys are safe. Don't worry about it. <laughs> but it is, right? That is how we learn truly how to master things. And that's the reality of data. WKO is a tool to achieve that. Data compartment, data utilization, all this technology, they're tools to help us understand our own evolution, our own journey as coaches, where we fail and why. Because that gives us something we can go back and analyze after the fact, right? It's the post-game breakdown. It's that thing. If it's it's our, uh, the onus is on us to learn from that. If we fail and we don't go back and look why and self-learn and we just look up on the internet, why did I fail? Because I was prescribing FTP intervals. <laughs> You're missing the point, right? Yeah. Go through the journey. And we always saw that as being a tool, but right, you know, mm -hmm. to help people learn, oh, they're going to go in and do analytics. They're going to think about the data that they have. And, okay. What was the output? How did that change the measurements or the metrics? That's what we hope people do with it. In today's world, that's a journey. Mm. It really is. And there's great coaches who embrace that philosophy that just crush it. There's a lot of self-coach athletes who race seven days a week on Zwift and more is more. And then yep. look at the data and be like, well, why isn't the data telling me what I want it to tell me? Right. Yeah. You got to have the mastery first. Sounds like you you could apply your JT, JDTW rule to both athletes and coaches then. Dude, right? I almost went there. I just didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> I tied it in for you. I mean, it makes perfect sense. It's yeah. true, right? I mean, look, look at how, how long it takes. And if you can't experiment and, and learn, you actually kind of just quickly plateau and you're only, you know, you only get so far in your coaching career. You're only you know, evolve so much. So I, I challenge people to keep learning and thinking on how to use all this data. The data is not the answer. Mm -hmm. It's how you use it to make better decisions. And part of that better decision yep. process is improving yourself. Yes. Yes. And refining instinct and intu intuition. I mean, ultimately when it comes down to it, I look at the data and I realize that my three decades as a racer, making my own mistakes, doing all, having all those failures that, that influences and will say feeds a lot of my intuition about what to do with an athlete next. It's like, it's December. What type of work do they need to be doing? What type of work do we not need to be doing? Like within, of course, the focus of their goal, their demand, their event, you know, is it unbound gravel or is it state time trial championships, right? All those different things. But okay, I know you've got to get going. You've got a Zwift ride to lead here in a few minutes. Is that right?
Uh, I got some, yeah, actually, I just got one off one before this is what it was. Oh, oh, okay. Got gotcha, you. Gotcha, in the gotcha. recovery zone. You're this is like my ongoing training, right? A little trainer time. And then we come in here, we've talked a little bit about training. <laughs> well, hopefully you're not uh, under feeling too much then. So after your workout. Um, okay, great. Well, if we have a few more minutes, I'd love to kind of shuffle us into a little bit of a different direction, if you're okay with that. And that is... Well, there are two two parts I'd like to break into. One is your thoughts on AI coaching and predictive coaching, because if we're talking about a black box problem, then how does data help inform, you know, software that predicts behavior or maybe maybe in theory sees the patterns that humans aren't picking up on by parsing the data, um, zip coding the data into different bins, and then saying, well, the athlete was very responsive to this, but not to that, and. And do you think that there's value in that? Or is an attentive coach who's really paying attention going to pick up on that anyway? Secondary question, B level would be then, is that going to lead us down the same rabbit hole where if we find that our rider is really responsive to 16 minute maximal efforts, that then we try to give that those efforts to that athlete for six months in a row and apply the more is more rule accidentally, right? I could see that kind of unfolding or, or snowballing. And then the second area I'd like to touch on after that is, technique and um to to baseline that you know andy once famously said like torque is irrelevant um which to me was very perplexing because if i'm not mistaken power is made up of two components torque and cadence so how how could torque ever be irrelevant ever but i know um andy's point again was it's an aerobic sport damn it that was his one of his more famous quotes so but in particular application of torque and and Sorry, I'm asking you two questions, separate questions in one, but I'll just go and then we can rewind. But recently I've heard a string of podcasts with physiologists, coaches, experts who talk about, this is kind of a recurring theme, you know, technique is obviously really important in swimming, right? Because you're traveling through a viscous fluid and so therefore how you apply force to that fluid really impacts your speed. And technique's really important in running because if you have crappy technique, you'll get injured really quickly, right? Or you just wear hokas, which is the you know, Tylenol solution. Don't get me started on those things. But um, if you are, have crappy technique in really bad technique in cross-country skiing, you just fall down, right? I mean, it's a highly balanced, intensive sport. And my contention is that technique actually is highly, highly important in cycling. And I think it's underrated because bicycles camouflage bad technique. However, I would love to hear your thoughts on, we, I know we have tools to measure this, assuming you've got power meters that are proper left, right, not modeled, you know, like a dual pedal system or a dual crank arm system that actually works. And again, gives us actionable data that's accurate. Have you had many experiences with athletes where you've actually seen big discrepancies in left, right, or particular aspects of peak power or average effective pedal force in a certain side of the stroke? And have you been able to make actionable changes with those athletes, either in on the bike awareness and training or off the bike. And I'd love to unpack that, but sorry, that was totally two different chapters at once. So I got it. Cool. So let's start with your AI question, but you do have a flame retarded suit, right? <laughs> so <laughs> one of the things when we say something like AI, this idea of artificial intelligence, right? We do, our brains tend to go right to this idea of like Terminator, right? Yes. We're going to make self killing machines. The matrix. It's not one point like it's not one thing you have to think about like continuum like like of what ai means and there's levels of ai ai is already playing an active role in how 
cycling coaches and how all coaches use data. As a matter of fact, when I said other sports are beginning to really take on this load of developing how we use data, other sports are making more progress in the utilization of AI than we are here in cycling. Part of it is we don't have quite the demand because our our data utilization needs are really more straightforward. And an athlete, put an athlete, put a, hu- a human being is like the least efficient thing in the world. Right. Worst, least efficient animal. Put us on a bike, we're like the most efficient animal. And that mm-hmm. means when we measure the power output and this and that, there's really a very clean linear relationship between that the, the, the stress the athlete is producing there and what's happening, you know, and what we can do with that data. AI is just what you said, right? Artificial intelligence is the ability to comb through large data sets and identify patterns and then supply that information back to us in a usable format, right? That's at the core when we talk about sports data AI, that's what we're looking for. Mm-hmm. And it's naturally meant to save the coach time. Meaning instead of you, you actually said it earlier about combing through all the data and have all this data. It really is something that just looks at a bunch of data, parses that data and breaks it down to a actionable analytic, some mm-hmm. type of output. And sometimes that outputs are very simple. This was good, this was bad. You know, the stoplight approach, green, yellow, red. And sometimes it's a number, a a wrapped up measurement or a metric. So AI is already playing roles in there for us, but we have some limitations in the way it happens. What we see happening in the sports data world right now in cycling, or it's been happening for a couple of years, is there's a split in AI. You do see artificial intelligence coaching. You know, you do see companies that say, you just put your data into this black box and we're going to spit out workouts. I appreciate what they're doing, oddly enough, but on the same side, I'm going to call shenanigans to be mm-hmm. polite. Um, they are developing a technology. They're not 100% sure what it's going to do. And it's really great. And, and the companies that are doing that, keep keep building, keep learning. Don't take what I'm saying as negative. Mm-hmm. But be careful how you present that to the public, because here's the element. Artificial intelligence coaching, that might be all right. Like if you had no idea, if you're just totally clueless and we're occasionally riding your bike, it could help you. But in general, there actually isn't enough data to make it work. We don't have all the variables to begin to do predictive or prescriptive analytics, which is like the end goal of AI, like the super high level of it. We don't have enough data variables. We need everything. Every breath you take, every every moment you sleep, every every bit of food you put in your mouth, right? We need all of that to really make great AI. Oddly enough, I'm not surprised if we don't get there in the next 10, 20 years. I'm just talking about where it is right now. So the company's doing that. They're they're not going to replace you, the coach. If you're a coach out there, don't be afraid of, of ever being replaced by AI. Embrace the idea of it as part of the analytic. And that way that you see whether it's software and there's lots of great stuff. So- Look, I'm WKO. That's my software. There's uh, you know other competitive softwares out there that do similar or different things or straight up similar. You have Golden Cheetah, you have Today's Plan, you have um, Inside, you know, and each one of them are doing some cool things and more power to it, right? Keep uh, uh, bringing that. We all bring something to the table. All of them are merging towards this AI thinking. How do we parse all of this big group of information, streamline it for the coach, and make actionable outputs that save you time in the thinking. But to be clear, 
that's not the decision. It's not telling you what to do. It's boiling all that down into actionable information that helps you, the coach, make the decision. AI coaching software that says, hey, just put data in and we'll get data out. That's not there yet. That needs some further time for development. We just need great analytics to boil down all that information and help guide us, make it easier for us to have the data to make good training decisions. That's okay. my think on AI. So do you, do you predict or do you think that at some point AI will get to the point where it will have enough data to be predictive or we don't know yet? I think it will actually, which kind of scares me to be honest with you, but that's a whole nother discussion because we got to get, we have to have all that data. But if you think about everything we do, I mean, we're being dated at all times. Somebody knows, you know, you're on Facebook. You use that as an example. You're on this. We're, we're really tracking the human experience at unparalleled levels. Yep. Um, and we, as the consumers of that information, uh, of utilize athlete, performing athletes, coaches, whatever, people who like social media, it doesn't matter. We're driving that. We, we want more and more. And at some point, it probably will result where uh, artificial intelligence might be able to coach better than a human coach. Mm-hmm. I think that's years away, but it's ways down. Yeah. That's if it was feasible, not if it was going to happen. So we're comfortable that it could happen. Okay. Okay. Cool. Fair enough. Um, all right. Do you want to dive into technique and torque and? Yes. So I have a lot of experience in the left, right side. And, you know, um, again, I will go to one caveat of the data and then let's talk about it's uh, my opinion. Um, The caveat of the data is we don't have robust enough data to really answer the hard questions that we want. Mm -hmm. So when we think about data production at this level, as we start to talk about left-right pedaling, right, most of the data is being recorded, and let's keep this simple, one time a second. So if you're you're pedaling at 60 RPM, and this is an oversimplification just to make it easy for everybody Mm -hmm. to understand, I'm getting one data point a second in a minute. So at 60 RPMs, I'm making one revolution a minute, nice and easy to measure. But if I'm spinning at 135, I want to use more of a random number, there's a lot of extra data in there that isn't being captured. So that's problem one. Problem, so we need to solve that problem. And you're starting to see, you're going to see this a little bit more in the next couple of years once we can manage the file size, high density data. Yeah, what about like pioneer right yeah right like they tried but it, you couldn't move those pi- people are like well why won't pioneer you know let the files go out because they were massive they make massive files so they're hard to deal with so we, we're we're figuring out ways to make that more manageable mm-hmm. so the second thing when you're specifically talking about pedaling is the way power meters are built the relationship between force which is how hard i'm pushing right i'm resisting against something and torque, torque is taking force and twisting it or spinning it in a circle. Mm-hmm. Um, when we pedal, particularly when we use like a crank-based power meter that sort of has left, right, and whatever, we're not always sure that the direction of that applied force is going in the right direction to maximize torque. Right. So there's an oversimplification that I just took the liberty again of doing right there. But you mm-hmm. have to think about it that way, right? I could push just as hard as on a pedal pushing put it at the bottom of the stroke, right? And, and and pull on your brakes and try to push straight out versus push straight down, right? create a similar force, but they'll have dramatically different impacts on moving the bike, right? Mm-hmm. So what we really want is 
torque, we, we, we want everything to go into the torque thing. So you're talking about the so difference between radial and absolutely, um, uh, sorry, radial and, uh, Jeez, now I'm like, I use this all the time when I'm explaining and fitting, and now I'm forgetting my terminology, tangential force. Tangential force. So in theory, the objective is to make more tangential force and less radial. So tangential would be always perpendicular to the crank in any orientation, just to guide the audience. And then radial would be from the bottom bracket to the pedal parallel to the crank. Correct. So radial force is not productive to moving the crank forward. So in one way, and I got to be careful here, particularly with you, with all your fitting experience, because the question is going to come into fit as a major impact, as, as yeah. one of the core impacts here, right, is people say efficiency. So right. let's separate efficiency into two different things. You have a physiological efficiency, but you also have a biomechanical efficiency happening. They both need to occur. If you make those two work together, there's some improvements to be had. Go ride your bike with a really low saddle and make power. Then go raise your saddle way too high and make power. Those will affect your biomechanical efficiency. In that particular example, saddle height and its fore aft position, that will mm -hmm. actually have physiological efficiency impact, right? Other bike fits might not, how you reach out, but that saddle right. fore and aft and height, as you know, does. So as we begin to measure left-right pedaling, we need more robust data so that we understand the direction of force. And we need a better job of understanding directional force. We need to record it faster, and we mm -hmm. need to understand that vector analysis where those that force is going, right? If we could put those two together, I think we'll have more robust data to improve cycling, uh, improve our ability to improve technique. Hmm. But the data we have now, um, it does give insight, but I don't use left-right data uh, all that much. Mm -hmm. Here's what I do use it for, and then let's you and I have a little back and forth about the caveats. I think people should use left-right pedal data. If you have the opportunity to get something that accurately measures left-right pedaling, get it. Because here's where it does play. It's excellent in situational information and plays great roles in certain situations. One, injury recovery. The mm -hmm. number of times I've seen an athlete coming back from a crash and an injury, coming back from some other muscular damage injuries, something like that, knowing the baseline before, knowing as they get back on the bike and as they train and they rebuild that biomechanical efficiency, what that progress is, is vital and crucial to building the athlete. Because as you would know, right, if they can't reestablish that baseline, they're also setting themselves up for potential longer-term injuries, further problems downstream. Compensation so patterns. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. And just, they get themselves in trouble. And without the ability to measurement measure that, the only way you find out you're in trouble is when you're in trouble, right? Yeah. It's already too late by the time you've figured out, man, I should have balanced that. I should have been doing some things to better improve that. Yep. When it comes to a healthy cyclist, I still think it's good to measure and watch. But unless you have an extreme variation, be careful that it doesn't like become the perfect pedaling stroke doesn't become a red herring. Because my personal belief, you're not meant to be symmetrical. You're a human being. If I took a softball, right, and I threw a softball with my right arm, and I threw a softball with my left arm, for me, I'm righty. The one I throw right-handed is going to go way farther, and I'm going to look cooler doing it. <laughs> and if I throw with my left hand, I'm going to look yeah. worse, and it's not going to go as far. Mm. Both of my arms are probably as strong, give or take, you know, a couple percentage. 
but one is much better coordinated at the task. Mm -hmm. The reality is when we think about left-right pedaling, it's not just about strength. As a matter of fact, my observation, it's more often about the coordination. So when I want to improve the athlete's pedaling performance, I want to do things that improves the coordination so they improve the, the force wave of the pedal stroke so mm-hmm. that the force waves are happening at a certain peakiness. You know, you know the stuff better than me, but the force wave wants to happen at a certain peakiness, right? That's in conjunction with the negative force of the other leg. So you have these inner, like we think about pedaling as a circle. Mm-hmm. And we always think about, wow, we're starting to apply power somewhere around 11, 12. And then we have this really powerful phase from 11, 12 to about four five. And we think in circle and then, you know, coming up the back phase, think about it as a wave, right? Mm-hmm. You're, each leg is making a wave where your force application to the pedal stroke, which needs to be correctly directed, tangential force, right? We want that. We don't want to waste it. That peakiness is the wave. While one wave's going up, your right leg is coming over 11, 12, 1 o'clock and beginning to create the force. The left leg needs to be also coordinated enough to do what it needs to do, which is really, in a simplest term, sort of uh, elegantly get out of the way. (laughs) That's what it really needs to do, right? You don't need to pull up, as you know, but we do need to make sure we're not absorbing a lot of power. We're not. So I want Mm -hmm. those waves to build those waves i will prescribe i prescribe a lot of that work anyway so i the left right balance work doesn't necessarily give me work it doesn't change my actions or what i prescribe but i still like my athletes to have it because i watch it because i have noticed without a great solution that at sometimes a lot of work on focusing on that, how we produce power, our ability to produce power at different cadences, which is a limiter for a ton of people on Zwift, whole nother conversation. Yes, yes. That, when we begin to manage that, I see some oddities in left-right balance, but I'm not mm-hmm. smart enough quite to figure it all out yet, but I'm continuing to look and learn. So that's my, my kind of thinking about left-right pedaling. Okay, cool. Yeah, I mean, I'd say... Um from my experience as a fitter, uh, trainers are problem magnifiers, right? If you have a little niggle or a tendency towards asymmetry on the road, that may not be an issue. And there, I think there are various reasons for that, but trainers just amplify that stuff like compound interest in my experience. And, you know, it was really interesting when COVID first hit, it was like, Hmm, I'm a coach. How's this going to go? You know, all, uh, this is basically an affluent person's, you know, optional activity. Am I going to end up having no clients? And, in my, you know, fortunately for me, most of my clients kind of actually went the other way. They were like, uh, nothing is stable in my life. Everything is upside down. I need stability. Please tell me what to do. So that was a great opportunity for me to, to establish, you know, deepen my relationship with a lot of my clients, but fitting wise things blew up like crazy because people were, people had nursed old injuries for years and kind of barely cobbled through. Now they had the opportunity to ride their bikes way more. And so the injury then escalated. But also people who went indoors, depending on where they were in the country or what their habits were or whatever, they rode a lot of Zwift and Zwift tends to, you know, it's boring to ride the trainer for two hours and just ride, you know, in zone two or whatever you want to call it, aerobic endurance. Um, So you end up doing a class or some intervals. Then before you know it, you're going hard and trainers are magnifiers of those problems, those asymmetries in my experience. So you got a little 
anterior rotation of the right hip on every pedal stroke, the bike is completely locked. It just sort of fulcrums that force either into your crotch or into your IT band, right? And then it's like, oh, I had this knee niggle that would come and go on the trainer and now I can't ride at all. I'm, I'm hobbling when I walk in to see you, which was unfortunate, but also helped us cleave a lot of problems and sort of get to the bottom of them. Um, so that was, that was one thing I'll say about trainers. There, there, you know, there are multiple problems I have with too much trainer riding and that, that tends to be one of them. You can offset a little bit of that by making a trainer platform that moves a little bit. Uh, the Saris one is quite good in my experience. That's what I use in my fit studio. I have one um, of my rocks. You do great. Awesome. Yeah. It moves back and forth. It gives you a little rock, but it also see, lets me see some of the asymmetries that riders present a little more organically. It's not obviously riding outdoors, but it gives me some clues to what's happening. And when the pedal stroke is too peaky, right? Too punchy, then that platform will kind of pulse forward on every pedal stroke. And then what we can infer is that the rider is accelerating, decelerating, accelerating, decelerating the bike too much on each stroke. And that is obviously not wonderfully efficient, but there's a natural sort of peakiness to a pedal stroke that needs to happen. And I think that it's easy to overlook the reasons why. Um, I unpack a lot of this in my lengthy podcast on how to pedal a bike. So I won't rehash that, but you know, if we look at how human beings are either evolved or um, engineered without getting into a creationism versus evolution debate, um, you know, we have a lot of muscular, how are our muscles distributed in our body? What are we designed to do? What is the ultimate function of humans? It's to walk and run. You got to walk and run to do anything, you know, talk to that cute girl, drink water, run from that tiger, all things boil down to gait. And so we have to walk and run and cycling, I would argue is really modified gait. And what are we doing when we're running and walking? We're pushing against the surface of the earth. So we have a lot of muscles that can uh, extend the knee and hip. We don't have so many muscles that can flex the knee and hip, not as many. So you look at the, just add up the mass of the quads, glutes, hamstrings, and calves, which all push down, and then add up the mass of things that can flex the knee. We've got hamstrings. Um, and then we also have what can flex the hip. We have um, rectus femoris and psoas and iliacus, not a lot of muscle, right? So, okay. This helps dispel why we don't want to pull up on the backside of the stroke, but it also explains why we're going to have a big peak on the downforce. So two myths about pedaling, in my opinion, one is we don't actually want to consciously pull up on the backside of the stroke that leads to a bunch of problems, right? And the, the data, I think there's data out there that supports this. Oh yeah. And thank you. And then also the other factor is we want to push down on the stroke, on the downside of the stroke, but, um, wait, I had another myth there in my head. It just flew out. My train of thought became derailed. That's okay. It'll come back to me if it's important, but if the pedal stroke is too, too punchy, too peaky on the downforce, then we get this inefficiency of, of cycling, uh, okay, there's my other myth is that we don't want a peaky downstroke and we have to have a peaky downstroke for two reasons. One is look at the muscular distribution of how we're made and what we're designed to do, which is push down against the surface of the earth. The second is, um, man, I keep losing my train of thought and going in circles. Sorry. The second reason that we have to have a big peak in our downstroke is this thing that we all tend to forget about unless you're an astronaut or a scuba diver. It's gravity. Legs weigh a lot. We're leg is falling in space. It's not just pushing down on the pedal. It's falling on the pedal. So if you had now granted that's counterbalanced by the other leg to some degree, right? 
but legs are falling. So we have this impact of gravity on pedal stroke systems, right? And, and gravity influences our pedaling in different ways. So I think that's important to point out that we have to account for these different factors in pedaling. Um, that was a bit of a misdirected rant, but anyway. No, it was good. Hey, I'll tell you too. And just to be clear with what I said, and I, I so appreciate you explaining it uh, your way. It, 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 one, it's, it was a better explanation. And two, um, it makes me feel a little confirmed. That's great. I, it's not that I don't use the left, right data. I do that technique work anyway. So I want everybody yeah. to understand what I really mean. It's like, I would do it anyway. Meaning I think it's really important that people spend time understanding and breaking down and working on select mechanisms within the training, uh, within mm -hmm. the pedal stroke. I fully agree with your point about peakiness. And that's the hardest thing for a lot. When you look at data, you know, the analytics of a lot of pros, they do do one thing. You know, we always think it's this super smooth stroke. But actually what happens from them is they have the ability to push down harder. I mean, don't mm -hmm. overthink it. There's an, yep. a handful of studies that are very clear about this reality. They just push down harder. And part of that means they're clearing the other four, doing, but they're not pulling up on the backstroke. They're not, they're just, at the end of the day, the difference maker is they push down harder. Mm -hmm. And it's like, don't get me wrong. They need to be doing all that correctly. But go back to the other thing I was saying, to be able to push down harder in a well-smooth controlled peak, right? That peakiness of the wave. Think about that force wave again, right? Mm. We tend to think, when we say the word strength, right? Sometimes we should say the word coordination. And when we're thinking about coordination, we should think about the way our muscles fire within the system. When we pedal a bike, we have a series of muscles working together. Um, and that's true with anything we do. I throw my softball, you walk, run, all those things, right? You have these systems. You go to the gym for the, I've been to the gym in five years and you go to the gym, right? You lift for four straight weeks. After a week or two, suddenly every day you go in the gym, you're adding 10 more pounds to your bench, like 10 more pounds to everything. And you're like, I'm getting stronger. Actually, you're getting more coordinated. Yeah, you're getting a little bit more stronger, but the driver of that early rapid increase is coordination. It's the signal your brain is sending to a series of muscle fibers to fire in a, in a, in a, in a, a series of, of weight, like one, then the other one, then the other thing, right? So what happens in my mind, so a lot of my technique work that I would do, regardless of the left-right output, is maximizing that. Like, I want them to be able to slow it down in their brain and build the coordination of pedaling stroke. Okay, cool. Yeah. So that's interesting. Um, so one question for you, it sounds like f when you prescribe technique work, you're talking about doing kind of more what we might call SFR or high torque intervals to help drive uh, more torque and recruit more muscle fibers and, and increase what I might call that movement engram, right? Is that what you're talking about or are you? So as a whole, I think as coaching one of the elements, remember, it's all these different, you think about an athlete performing, right? You have a metabolic system, you have a cardiovascular system, you have an endocrine system, but you yep. have this neuromuscular reality. So there needs to be, we have to train that, that neuromuscular side, that neuromuscular manipulation should be part of training as a whole. And to me, I always give that overarching answer. I want to make sure an athlete is resilient in all situations. When it comes to neuromuscular or pedaling technique, I want to make sure they can make power in a broad range of cadences. 
Now, look, the yep. reality is some of us are better climber on making power on a climb. Some of us are better at making power on a flat, but I want to make that athlete versatile and resilient in that way. So the overarching strategy is I want to broaden that scope. Like I don't want them to, man, at, at 90 RPMs, they make good power, but as soon as they go up a hill and they run out of gears, they can't make power or right. going, you know, in a and there's a tailwind and they just can't crank it out. I want, I want the spectrum of ability as best we can create it. Right. That is a combination of techniques ranging from higher cadence work, high torque work. And I think really it comes down in my philosophy, it's um, uh, timing the mix of those so that they're like a periodization process where we're building skill uh, and coordination and then the next skill and the next coordination in a way that best suits that athlete. Mm -hmm. um, so I have a generalized approach to it that goes that way. And left-right data and other data might make me change that approach, which you know is 20, 30, 40% of the time. But I always want to build that range of capabilities, which means a range of different neuromuscular manipulation drills, different cadence work, high torque, high cadence. Yeah. 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 Pushing the envelope on the ability for cadence. I have a lot of writers who write me questions and they're like, why are we doing this three by 10 tempo at 110, 115 RPM average? This is, I can't do this at all. I suck at this. I'm like, cause we need to push your envelope and make you capable of producing power across a broader range of cadences. That's what's required in most real world bike race applications, unless you're training for an hour record, but even, even unbound gravel, you have moments where you're going to have to push a big gear with a lot of force or well, whatever gear size it is with a lot of force at a low cadence and also uh, high force, high cadence. And, and the other, you know, just like the four quadrants, like the other applications, of course, the high, the high force at either low cadence or high cadence tends to be the moments where things happen in bike races that are significant. So, yeah. And then you need a lot of that work. You know, you look at all the Zwift programs. Like I, you know, we 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 do some programs throughout the winter with with our base camp program. We have people online all the time. Yep. And I'm like, we need to. There, it's really important that you're working that side with them because you'll sit on a trainer and you'll just drone into one cadence all the time. So it's really yeah. important if you're doing a lot of your time with the trainer. One, I recommend a plate. I was so I was stoked you said that because. People say, well, a plate makes it like outside and natural. No, that's not quite true either, but it does give you enough movement to allow uh, a better impact to, to not put all that force back into the bike, back into the trainer. Right. Um, and then two, you need, to, if you're doing a lot of winter training, you need more cadence work because you're losing the natural variability right off the bat that outdoors will bring you. So mm -hmm. that is a more important role when I see an athlete being indoors I prescribe more cadence work. And it's funny, like when an athlete says, well, why do you have me doing that 10 minutes at 110 cadence? It's really hard. It's like, I write them back. Well, you just answered your own question, right? Yeah. <laughs> if yeah. it's a struggle, then you need to learn to do it. That's, that's part of getting out of that comfort zone. That's part of learning new skill, improving coordination and all the things we're talking about. But it is funny how people, I have athletes do that all the time. They'll ask me the question just that way. And it's like, sometimes I just want to let it hang out there in the air till the light bulb goes off. But like, wait, I really did struggle to do that. Um, but that's, part of it and particularly important in today's indoor training world. Yeah. Another way to say that is if you can't, you must, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Two last little points I want to present. Well, one is I'll just say 
uh, I'd love to know if you agree or disagree with this, but one, I also give my riders a lot of drills to help push their envelope of cadence and torque, producing torque over that wider envelope of cadence or that wider range of cadence. But one drill I do not give my riders is single-legged pedaling drills, and I think these are garbage. Um, I couldn't agree more. Okay, great. You know, it's so funny. I, I was on a Zwift ride. Like I said, we do this program, this little indoor program. Um, and dude, you're going to shoot me for this. Um, but a pro joined us, one you know. Okay. And we were actually working on this cadence work. We were talking about neuromuscular manipulation and making power at different cadences. And we were doing some work. Okay. And this pro was like, literally like, no, you guys, you need to do one-legged pedaling. And I was like, oh, I'm so stuck. I don't want to counter him because he was polite enough to join our ride. And yeah. On it. And I wanted to, but I always preach against single leg. Yes. Because all that ends up happening is one leg gets a little stronger and, and whatever, maybe, but the other one gets weaker. But you, I'll make up my own word. You discoordinate the two. Mm. They're meant to, and when you're on a bike, you need to get them working together for the appropriate co- you know, uh, coordination and recruitment of muscle fiber. Yeah. right yeah. that's that simple but i was like oh wow that's painful and like there was two or three times i went to make the comment like no that's wrong and i'm like no don't do it to him no that's wrong no don't do it to him just because the pros do something doesn't mean it's the right answer everybody there yes. they might be pros just in spite of what they do right and that's it is what it is learn your own but you and i would agree single-legged pedaling is not not a drill in my list agreed Agreed. Perfect. Okay. I'm glad you said that. Um, yeah, for me, it just becomes so far removed from what actual pedaling is. It all becomes about unweighting the leg just to get it over the stroke. And that has nothing to do with how we want to pedal in the real world. Because as you said, when we study pros, what do they do? They just push down harder. So now you could use one leg of pedaling drills as a diagnostic to prove to someone they've got an incredibly high, tight hip on one side and that their hip flexors aren't really working well. But that's it. We don't want to take it any further. It's it would be diagnostic, and that's it, in my opinion. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And and when you look at the pull up on the backstroke, right? And this idea, you could look at it. You always look at things in a in a good three sixty view. You could look at a force wave, or you could look at a force monitor of that in high definition data. But like, but no, no, Tim, you don't understand. They made more power. They applied more torque all the way around the circle, and that's great. The physiological cost was so high. Yeah. Right. That's what people, you got to look at the whole picture. Yeah. If I look at one circle, one revolution of that leg, you could single leg, put out more power that way. It would look like that one leg would go, but physiologically speaking, you're now engaging calf and extra hamstring. You're, you're, you're changing the ankle stroke and the ankle stability. You're doing all this stuff that's burning calories, right. That you just don't want to burn because over Mm -hmm. time, the fatigue from that is going to slow you down anyway. Yeah. The second thing is, right, when you when your powerful pedal stroke is going down, do you really think you're going to add power to the backside by pulling up on the other leg? Man, you were totally right. We're meant to walk and to pound against gravity. Our ability to push down is massively stronger than our ability to pull up. Yep. You're not going to overpower that anyway. Yep. Just focus on that. You know, a good, smooth, strong peak application, mm-hmm. everything else will work out. Yep. Yep. And also, you know, this goes back to the conversation that's been bouncing around recently in coaching circles is the concept between um, central fatigue or central load and peripheral, right? And when you try to pedal in this perfect 360 degree applying tangential force all the way around the stroke, 
what you're doing is because our muscle distribution is not equal, effectively what you do is you put a high emphasis on smaller amounts of muscle tissue. So you're, you're focusing the metabolic load into the peripheral system on muscles that aren't prime movers, or maybe they are prime movers, but they're not the largest prime movers. And as intensity goes towards maximum, we have to use our prime movers, our largest prime movers. We have to, like, that's how it works. You want to generate a lot of force. You don't do it with your pinky. You do it with your glute, the biggest muscle in the body, your quadriceps, right? You have to use the big muscles to make a lot of force. So sure, we might be able to butterfly our way along, you know, at 88 watts and um, 90 RPM with this perfectly round stroke. But as soon as the business end of anything happens, a climb, a sprint, an attack, a surge, you're going to have to rely on the the muscles that can actually generate a lot of force. So yeah, Yeah, cool. Um, And then just to rewind a bit on your comment on asymmetry, you know, your, your um, throwing a baseball example was great. I'd also like to remind humans that I, I do agree it's a fool's errand to go chasing 50-50. And I have clients who write me these emails. Sometimes like, I'm 49-51. What do I do? It's like, first of all, there's a good chance that that modeled left-right is not telling you anything useful anyway, because we don't know where in the stroke that 51 or 49 is coming from. But so it can, it can end up chasing you down the wrong rabbit hole. But secondarily, like, uh, like, do you start your car with your left hand ever? Does anyone? I don't know of a single, maybe, maybe there are cars in the Southern Hemisphere that have a keyhole on the other side. They probably are. But in the Northern Hemisphere, okay, you have, have like, what side of your body is your liver on? Is it in the middle? No, it's on the right. And what happens when you train as an endurance athlete your liver becomes swollen with glycogen. It literally becomes physically swollen. So that imbalances your torso. Do you have the same number of lobes of lung on both sides of the body? No. Is your heart in the center of your chest? It's on the left side. We are asymmetrical by design. And then on top of that, we have life experience. We have injuries and accidents and broken femurs and broken collarbones and you know all the habit patterns we use that we do in our daily lives, like riding and starting cars. So to expect just because your bicycle has a device that measure that tells us in theory how much power you're using on one side or the other, it doesn't mean that that goal will ever be attainable. Is symmetrical pedaling an objective or an ideal of training? Sure. But plus or minus a couple percent, you're doing great. <laughs> That's, That's all I would, Yeah. I don't even think about like if an athlete says anything to me or whatever with the number, I don't even think about it till I, it's like, I don't know. You almost have to be like, 60, 40, <laughs> you yeah. know, it's got to, if you see a big change, okay. then there's questions you start asking. Don't get me wrong at that much. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd be saying something, maybe even 55, 45, if they're injured or what, but otherwise than that, it's yeah. just, it's not that accurate of a data. And it, and it's, it's not, you know, it might be more norm than you think. Yeah. And if you time and time again, what I do see is when people chase balancing things out, they can balance them out. They can actually impact it to some degree, but they don't go faster. As a matter of fact, they might end up going slower. Slower, yeah. Why spending all that mental energy and all that stuff and all that whatever to go slower? There's plenty. I'd rather drink beer and eat cake. That makes (laughs) me slower, but it's a whole lot more fun, right? Right. Right. Cool. Well, um, Tim, I want to say thank you so much for coming on the show today and unpacking all your thoughts and sharing with us your your thoughts on coaching and AI and technique and all these discussions. I hope that my audience finds them interesting. I feel like I was a little scattered today. My brain parts weren't quite switched on. wasn't always able to 
verbalize uh, clearly, but did the best I could. You uh, were very clear and you explained a lot of great concepts. So I appreciate your time and, and attention today. Will you take a moment, please, to tell everyone where they can find out more about you and your coaching business and learn more about Tim? Sure. Well, two hats. One, you can find out about me on trainingpeaks.com. Uh, you know, obviously, as the Training Peaks WKO product leader, we uh, I do a fair amount of education, Training Peaks University. I teach power certification and everything for Training Peaks. So if you're looking for learning and information, head over there. But really, uh, online right now in our winter, you can find our coaching company. It's called Basecamp. The website is joinbasecamp.com. Um, I have a great team. Like I'm so blessed to work with you know such amazing athletes and coaches and stuff like that. Uh, head over there, take a look at who we are, uh, say hello, and you could always you know email me through that website or whatever. Facebook, other things, I'm pretty easy to find. You know, WKO. Uh, just go and Facebook search for the WKO Power Group, and there's like eight, nine, ten thousand other data nerds like me floating around in there. Mm -hmm. uh, information, so you can always kind of join up and see us over there, also. Awesome. All right, you've got your marching orders, people. Go forth and find out the info. I can say I've taken several of Tim's webinars on WKO, and they've been really instructive and useful, and and uh, I've learned a lot from those. So. Awesome. I, can, I can vouch for those. those are free. I mean, you could Google yeah. search WKO webinars, right? We just put them out there. You'll need, you kind of need the software, but uh, yeah. you'll still get the concepts, right? It's free. So please feel free to look that up also. Cool. All right. Well, I think that does it. Thank you so much, Tim. Awesome. Thanks for having me. You bet. And um, I will see you around, I'm sure. Talk soon. Okay. Thanks. Epilogue. I want to share a few brief thoughts about the inception of cycling and alignment. The purpose of this podcast is for me to get three and a half decades of hard fought lessons out of my skull. Some of them through my own research and reading. Some of them I've been taught through mentors and colleagues, other riders, other racers. A lot of it, a massive amount of it was simply trial and error through my own stubborn methods and that has amassed a certain amount of experience and knowledge understanding and while i think i'm reasonably smart and i know quite a bit of stuff i want to make it clear that the opinions that i share on this podcast are belief systems built on what i've experienced to this point and that some of those opinions are pretty strong but they are also loosely held that is to say that if I learn more about a topic and have a greater level of clarity or understanding, then my old belief systems will be abandoned and I will now operate under that newfound knowledge. So I'm not here to tell people all the things that I know. I'm here to explain what I've learned to this point. And there's a big difference. Also, that is the intent when I discuss things on the pod with guests is to learn from them and have a discourse. Because if we can't have a discourse as adults, then we've lost one of the basic tenets of modern society. Even if we disagree, we ought to be able to, in most cases, shake hands and walk away. 
Because after all, this is sport we're talking about. And while sport is training for life, it's nothing to get too upset over. The purpose of the podcast is to help me help other people and specifically to help them actualize their highest potential by illuminating a path that enables alignment with their truth, their intent, and their coherence. That's really the end goal. So I'm grateful for your listening. My intent is also not, to be clear, to gain an audience or become popular or gain social status in any way. I don't care about that stuff. That said, if you feel an episode that you have heard will help someone you know, please share it with them. That helps us reach the end goal, which is to help more people. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for your time and attention. Blessings. Blessings.